Good morning. All right. I think everyone can hear me, hopefully. It is good to be with you all this morning. And good morning also to those of you joining us on the live stream. Thank you for joining us, uh, those of you who are in person on this cold and rainy holiday weekend. Thank you, worship team, um, led by Andy, for leading us so admirably in our song selection this morning. It's my privilege this morning to present our fourth sermon in our series on 1 Timothy. It's kind of interesting in our Timothy series, I didn't get to pick my sermon texts, they were assigned to me, so I ended up with this text that entails excommunication of false teachers and civil government. And then I get another passage in a few weeks about church discipline and removal of a pastor. So thanks guys, I appreciate the curveballs. But uh, I'm also thankful I didn't get Pastor Mike's text for next week. I'll be the first to admit that preaching through a letter of Paul is my weakness. That's because Paul is difficult. Peter says that. Our brother Paul sometimes speaks in a difficult way. He is hard. His arguments are hard to follow. He builds thought upon thought, and you really have to dig to unravel his argument and get to the heart of what he's saying. I much rather prefer an Old Testament narrative or a gospel story. So I pray that you will indulge me with your kind attention this morning as we look into this text. The title of my message today is Against All Enemies, Inside and Outside. And that title is borrowed from the U.S. Oath of Office, used for military enlistment and commissioning, which says, I do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same. That's because it's Memorial Day. Uh, let me read the scripture for you. We are in 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to end chapter 1 and go on to chapter 2. So starting in 1 Timothy 1 verse number 18, going through chapter 2 verse 7. Uh, all right, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, it is on page 991 of your pew Bible, and it says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about, about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. I have three points for you this morning. Points are inside, point two, outside, and point three, the gospel. Or you could say, enemies inside, enemies outside, and we'll end with the gospel. Let me go ahead and pray for us. Gracious God, 
I do affirm the words of the Apostle Peter who says that our beloved brother, Paul, writes in a manner that sometimes is hard to understand. And so I affirm this morning the weakness of the human messenger to dissect and to communicate the true meaning of the scripture. So I would pray that you would not leave me here by myself, but that the message would go forth through the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray that your work would be done. May we be edified uh, this morning through the preaching. I pray that only what is accurate to the text of Scripture would be what remains in the hearts of the brothers and sisters here this morning. I pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Point number one, inside or enemies inside. Verse 18 of chapter 1, I'll read it again for you so it's fresh as we dissect it. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. And that's going to be point number one, which is about the enemies within, or the enemies inside. In my first point, I want to show you two areas of conflict for the Christian believer. Within or inside the church, conflict from inside the soul of the believer, and conflict from within or inside your very church. But first, I'll give you some context about the disciple Timothy, to whom this letter is written, because that will be helpful to understand the instructions, warnings, and encouragement that Paul gives to him. We first meet Timothy in Acts 16, as Pastor Mike read for us earlier. He is probably already a Christian at that point. He was taught the scriptures by his mother and his grandmother, who were Jewish believers. But Timothy's father was a Greek and an unbeliever. We know from scripture that Timothy's father had some influence in the family to cause them to ignore the importance of their Jewish faith. As a young believer, Timothy has a good reputation among the believers in his region. After he met Paul in Acts 16, he traveled with Paul to the towns in his region to strengthen and edify the churches because Timothy's ministry to the churches was going to be predominantly a Jewish ministry, Timothy was compelled to be circumcised so he can identify more with his Jewish roots and present himself as fully Jewish and Christian. Timothy accompanied Paul in various parts of his second and third missionary journeys, and Timothy is included in the greetings or salutations in eight of Paul's letters, and he is mentioned 28 times in the Bible. Paul sent Timothy to the city of Ephesus about 10 to 12 years after Timothy had begun laboring with him and being mentored by him. So getting into our text, Paul says in verse 18, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you that by them you may wage a good warfare. What charge is entrusted to Timothy? Timothy was sent to be pastor and overseer for the churches in Ephesus, specifically combating false doctrine and ensuring sound doctrine and church order for those churches. First Timothy is written to instruct and encourage Timothy for this task. We call it a pastoral epistle because it codifies the principles and dictates of church order for us so that we are not left guessing about 
how God wants churches to be established, ordered, governed, advanced, and multiplied. The charge entrusted to Timothy is the whole book of 1 Timothy and the task it lays out for him. Secondly, this charge is in accordance with the prophecies that were made about Timothy. So what's that about? What prophecies were made about Timothy? I think we get some understanding in 1 Timothy 4.14, where Paul tells Timothy, do not neglect your gift which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. What I think is that when Timothy was ordained as a pastor, the elders who determined his suitability for the ministry and affirmed his calling from God upon his life laid hands on him to pray for him, and in so doing, the elders spoke prophetically about him, recognizing or affirming or revealing the unique gifting that Timothy had for the ministry. Perhaps Timothy was uniquely gifted in his teaching ability. Perhaps he was skillful in debating doctrine against the opponents of Christianity. Perhaps he had a unique ability to oversee the work of multiple new churches in one region until they were sufficiently established as autonomous functioning churches. Perhaps Timothy's gifting was some combination of all those things. And Paul is reminding him, encouraging Timothy, I'm going to give you six chapters here, and I'm going to outline a difficult task. I'm going to talk to you about all kinds of things, from prayer to women to appointing pastors to avoiding false teachers to caring for widows to disciplining pastors to paying pastors and all sorts of other stuff. And you have the task of making sure the churches in Ephesus are structured according to these instructions. But don't get overwhelmed and discouraged, Timothy, because I know you're up to the task. Think back to when you first became a pastor and the words that were spoken about you at your ordination service, revealing your unique gifting for this task. And if you stick close to that, Timothy, you'll be able to fight well in this difficult task. So point number one, the conflicts inside. Verse 19, the first aspect of the conflict or the warfare which Timothy and we all will face is the struggle inside our own hearts. Paul says we must hold faith and a good conscience. We have an obligation to continue in the faith, to persevere in the faith, to grow in the faith individually and collectively as a church. That's why we meet regularly for instruction in the word. But this verse indicates to us that simply having accuracy with the propositions of our beliefs, having knowledge of true doctrine and holding to it is good but not enough. God is also interested in how we hold to our doctrine. We are to do so with a good conscience. Doctrine matters, as we've been saying, but also the purity of the heart through which we embrace our doctrinal positions also matters. The conscience is an internal and immaterial part of man. It's an internal witness to ourselves of the moral law of God that God has written into the heart of every person, which is why every person experiences some basic guilt for sin, even if they have never heard about the God of the Bible. For the Christian believer, additionally, the conscience is informed more specifically by the word of God and the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The conscience can be strengthened or weakened, exercised or wounded, preserved in goodness and purity, and altogether seared and defiled. A good conscience is maintained by regular, 
obedient responses in the inner man towards God. A good conscience is maintained by keeping short accounts with God, confessing known sin, approaching him in prayer, speaking honestly, and living without hypocrisy. On the other hand, a conscience is made bad or polluted or defiled by regularly disobedient responses uh, to God in the inner self, not confessing known sin, repenting falsely, not approaching him in prayer, speaking deceitfully, and living with hypocrisy. So the first and most basic struggle of the believer is that of our inner life. We hold the faith, but do we do it with a good conscience? You know, I believe that Woodside has become a church in pursuit of doctrinal purity in the past couple of years beyond anything I've experienced in all my life at Woodside. And I see the way some of you in my small group are hungry and engaged for the nuggets of truth as we look at the Bible. I know that during the pandemic, some of you started Zoom Bible studies and prayer groups. I know some of you are grappling with the doctrines of Reformed theology on your own. I've seen some of you demonstrate your heart for evangelism and competence for it in evangelistic outreach. But those of us who were in Bible study on Thursday can see the strength of doctrine in our church. And let me say this, I think that there are very few churches in New York City where a study on sexual immorality from Romans 1 could have been presented with the biblical clarity, firmness, and grace that was presented in our church on Thursday. Woodside, your progress in doctrine and your love for doctrine is a good thing, and we should thank the Lord for that. However, we must hold the faith with a good conscience. It must not be that outwardly we are speaking the words of good doctrine and inwardly our hearts are far from God. It must not be that we speak about theology and election and predestination and sexuality and reformation and inwardly we decline to be obedient to the things of which we speak outwardly. And Paul warns that if we reject or slip away from this, we are in danger of destroying our faith, making shipwreck of our faith, crashing our faith against the rocks, if you will. In verse 20, he gives us an example of two men for whom this was the case, Hymenaeus and Alexander. So who are Hymenaeus and Alexander? Most likely they are professing Christians who had turned into deniers of the faith and had become false teachers, twisting the faith, or both. Hymenaeus is mentioned twice in the Bible. Here and in 2 Timothy 2, he is associated with another false teacher named Philetus. And specifically, they were teaching that the hope of the believer's resurrection had already passed. So either they were saying that Christ had already come back and raised the dead, or that there would be no actual bodily resurrection. The next man, Alexander, is, um, his name is also um, mentioned in here and in 2 Timothy 4. And in 2 Timothy 4, Paul refers to Alexander the coppersmith who gave him much trouble. This Alexander and that Alexander could be the same guy, or they could be two different Alexanders. It was a common Greek name at the time. Alexander could also be a Jewish leader that was present in Acts chapter 19 when there was a riot in the city of Ephesus. In any case, Hymenaeus and Alexander are men who once upon a time belonged to the church but later became false in belief and practice. Paul says that he handed them over to Satan, which is a phrase that he uses in 1 Corinthians 5, meaning to excommunicate someone from the church. Excommunication is the harshest 
form of corrective discipline in the church. It is to put someone out of the fellowship and the protection and the ordinances of the church and into the world so that they would experience the spiritual difficulty brought about by their sin and turn back to the Lord in repentance if they are indeed genuinely saved. Excommunication is not something to be done lightly. It is not something to be joked about or treated casually or performed quickly, carelessly, or an emotional passion, but it is to be done deliberately, carefully, and soberly, and that is because it is essentially taking someone you once regarded as a believer and disfellowshipping them from the church and essentially demonstrating that they don't belong to God, but instead to Satan. And part of the sin of Alexander and Hymenaeus, Paul says in verse 20, was blasphemy. Blasphemy is speaking evil of God. It is denying true doctrine and ascribing false doctrine to God. It is doing evil in God's name. It is seeking, it is seeing the clear working of God's power through the Holy Spirit and ascribing it to Satan or any combination thereof. And this should be sobering for us that men like Hymenaeus and Alexander could once upon a time be part of the Ephesian church and then eventually get to the point where they are blasphemers and false teachers and need to be disciplined and excommunicated from the church. This is a church that was personally started by the Apostle Paul. He ministered in Ephesians for three years. And still, false teachers rose up within their midst. In fact, in Acts chapter 20, he gives them this warning before he leaves Ephesus. He says in Acts 20, verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men, speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears. It seems to be a regular occurrence these days that you'll hear about some big-name celebrity Christian with a large following who once upon a time was having a large and fruitful ministry serving the Lord, but now no longer professes faith in Christ, but rather actively opposes the Christian faith. How? How does that happen? I think 1 Timothy tells us how by not holding the faith with a good conscience. The writer of Hebrews gives us this warning, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day as it is called today, that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. It is because sin is deceitful and subversive and difficult to deal with that we should exhort one another every day. That's why we should be checking up on one another, holding one another accountable in practice, in our practice of the faith. And we should be willing to call out and engage with one another when we deviate from correct doctrine and correct practice. It is a good thing for us to ask one another how we are doing in our faith and practice. And this is why before you become um, hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, you should go to brothers and sisters and ask for help in fighting the entangling sin that continually is besetting us. 
realized that Hymenaeus and Alexander came from inside the church. They weren't false teachers who showed up and tried to oppose the true doctrine that was being preached. They were part of the church. And Paul warns the Ephesians of false brethren from within the church. So here's the point of application. The church membership process. Do you get to know new prospective members before you vote on them? Do you engage with them? Do you ask them basic questions? Like, how did you become a Christian? What church did you go to before Woodside? Well, I was saved for 30 years. This is the first church. Oh, okay, that's interesting. What do you like about Woodside? Well, I'd like to meet some girls or guys. Well, that's, that's a problem. But do you engage with them? Do you get to know them? Church, you are the pillar and the buttress of the truth. The faith must be propagated for the next generation. You must preserve it and protect it. The pastors will lead you in that work, but the work is your work. It's a task that belongs to you. So are you, are you getting to know people? Are you engaging with them on spiritual things? Okay, point number two, outside. Having talked um, about being watchful over your own conflict, the conflict inside your heart, and the potential for false believers to arise from inside your church, Paul will now turn his attention to things outside the church. So he says in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high possessions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. These verses were hard to study because it seemed that nearly every sermon you hear about these verses in the last, who knows, 10, 20 years, and I, I really, I'm being hyperbolic, I didn't listen to every sermon on these verses. But it seems that everyone just very narrowly contextualizes these verses to discuss the American political landscape. And I just don't believe that is good and accurate preaching. In studying or preaching the Bible, we must not quickly jump and ask, what does this mean to me and how can I stretch this passage to apply to my life and my situations? Rather, first we must do the hard work of asking, what did this mean in the context of the day? How did the original hearers understand it? And what did the divine author and the human author in intend to communicate? So Paul, in verse 1, urges Timothy that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. And specifically, he singles out kings and all in authority. And then in verse 4, uh, we see that he wraps this up with an evangelistic focus. So how should we understand and apply this? And I think what Paul is talking about is praying for those who are unbelievers outside the church, which includes the power structures of your society from the top down, from kings down to all people. And what is it about Timothy and his ministry that makes this so important for Paul to say? Well, if you've read the book of Acts, you'll know that early on in the city of Ephesus, the transformation that came through the conversion of believers was so great and so fruitful that it had a noticeable effect on their culture, their economy, and their religious system. Ephesians, having been converted to the Lord Jesus Christ, no longer practiced their magic arts and sorcery. 
nor worshipped in the temple, which was a threat to normal life as the Ephesians knew it. The craftsmen of idols perceived this threat, and they caused a rally, a protest, and a riot in the city of Ephesus, which the city government noticed and had to address to calm it down. So think about that. You're the Ephesian church, or a group of churches, and you know that because of your faith, they, they're, and you're destabilizing your society as you know it, and it's already caused a riot. Think about how the believers would be tempted given that situation. Transformative, fruitful Christianity is an expression of a kingdom that's not of this world, belonging to the king over all kings. And Christianity will always be a threat to the kingdoms of this world that are opposed to the Lord and his anointed. And so kings and all in high places who don't know the Lord will always be opposed to the church and the gospel in some form. So we pray. Think about the believers and how they would have been tempted to respond to living in a place like Ephesus, knowing that in the recent history of their city, there was a literal riot over the Christian faith and the gospel. And I could see two things happening. Some believers would be very timid and fearful. Secondly, some believers would be emboldened for unnecessary conflict. And we see both sides of this spectrum in our church. There are some members in our church who you're always ready for civil disobedience. The mayor could say something, and you will not do it simply because the mayor said it. The governor could say, you should give your grandmother flowers, and you'll say, nope, not going to do it. And there are some members in the church for whom it would not even register for you that there would ever be a cause to question civic authority. The mayor could say, as he did last April, that the NYPD would go around on Sundays and issue citations and building violations to churches that were gathered. And some of you would timidly rationalize it as being for your own good and safety, and you would have no fortitude to oppose it. And where does Timothy fall on this spectrum? Is he ready for unnecessary conflict, or is he timid? I think Timothy was more on the timid side. When the riot happened in, in Ephesus, Timothy was not actually there. He was in Macedonia. But there is no doubt that he became aware of it as it had a profound effect on the Ephesian church, even making them fearful of the society that they lived in. So Paul says, pray. He gives a broad spectrum of prayer, including every angle from which you can pray. Supplication, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving. And I like the way the commentator Matthew Henry differentiates the nuances of meaning in each of these words. Supplication for the averting of evil, prayers for the obtaining of good, intercession for others, and thanksgiving for mercies already received. And so this is why we have public pastoral prayer that regularly includes those unbelievers who hold the reins of power in our society. We ask God to avert their evil. We ask God to do good through them. We intercede on their behalf before God that they would have his blessing and wisdom in their function and that he may be patient with their unbelief and bring them to faith and repentance. We thank God for them, for the semblance of order and justice and peace that we actually do experience through them. Next, what is the objective of our prayer for those outside the church? Verse 2 says that we, so that we might live 
a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. The objective that the church ought to want to obtain by praying for those who hold power in our society is simply this, the opportunity to live a quiet and peaceful life, the ability to be godly, to walk rightly with God and dignified, to walk rightly with our fellow man. Everything for which we may petition our civic authorities should fall under that objective, that we just want to live a quiet and peaceful life to be right with our God and walk rightly with our fellow man. We want our civic authorities to grant and maintain everything we need to accomplish that objective, and so we pray. You know, sometimes you hear churches or pastors say stuff like, what the church needs these days is more persecution, and I think that's just ridiculous. We, we don't see that sentiment in scripture, and I understand what they mean, that persecution rightly received has a way of bringing sharpness and clarity and prioritization in the life of a church. So God does use persecution even though it can ravage, destabilize, and unsettle a church as we see all throughout Acts. So we try to respond in a godly way if and when persecution does come, but we pray to be granted the opportunity to live a godly and peaceful life. See, the church is always going to offend and make people upset with our message. Every once in a while at our evangelistic outreach, we'll have someone kind of yell at us or harass us. Nothing majorly bad has ever happened. But what we, and we should expect that, but we don't want it to get out of hand where the civic authorities sanction it or turn a blind eye to it. So we pray for them. And that's good and pleasing in the sight of God says in verse 3. And why is it good and pleasing in the sight of God? Because he's our savior. And verse 4, he desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. You see, it's not just so that we have a quiet and peaceful life, but it's that we have a mission for the gospel. God desires all people to be saved. So let's talk about this. What are the options for how we understand this verse? God desires all people to be saved. Option number one, universal salvation, which teaches that God desires the salvation of all and God gets what he wants. And so in the end, all will ultimately be saved regardless of what faith and practice they have embraced during their lives. Option number two, modern evangelical Arminianism. God desires the salvation of all, but he leaves it us, up to us to choose to be saved, and so not all will be saved because they don't choose it. Option number three, some people teach, and this might be a good argument. I, I just don't explain it very well, but here's what it is. Option number three, the multiple desires or wills of God which teaches that God's desires are to be understood in various ways. So God can desire something to be done that he sees as good and right and obedient, and yet he doesn't ultimately decree it or determine it, so therefore it won't happen. And this is how people reconcile that God desires all to be saved, but not all will be saved. A lot of people go with that option, and it might sound persuasive and good, but it's way above my understanding, and I think it can be a good enough explanation, and, but, and people smarter than myself can do a better job of explaining, but, explaining it. But here's a fourth option. Here's what I think is going on. To understand 
this, you have to understand the context of this passage. The key is the word all, and I believe that this is the word that we all struggle with. When a passage says something like God desires all men to be saved, and he is the savior of all men, or that God so loved the world, or he's a propitiation for the whole world, verses like that sound like there is a universal scope to Christ's saving work. But the struggle that we have is that, well, not all people end up saved. Some people end up eternally judged. So how do we reconcile that? Here's what you have to remember. Early Christianity was predominantly Jewish at first. And it was a big controversy among the early disciples and even among the apostles themselves to determine if God's salvation through Christ was available to the Gentiles independently of them having to uh, satisfy the requirements of Judaism first. And so the way I understand this verse, which says God desires all men to be saved is like this. God desires all men without distinction, Jew and Gentile, to be saved. And I want to ask, am I stretching this or is this how Timothy would have understood this? Am I being faithful to the scripture or am I just making up my own idea? Well, look at how Paul ends that passage in verse 7. He says, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. For this, for the propagation of this message that I am telling you, Timothy, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. He is so emphatic. Timothy, I'm telling the truth. I am not lying. Why is he being so emphatic to get his point across to Timothy? Timothy, what I'm telling you about God's desire to save all, this is why I'm a preacher and an apostle. Timothy, trust me. Trust me on this. I'm not lying. My mission as an apostle was to be a teacher to the Gentiles. Why does he need to go through that? Because Timothy is a pastor in a Gentile context. And that would have been intimidating because Timothy was a Jewish identifying Christian. His spiritual heritage was from his Jewish mother and grandmother. His work under Paul was going to be in a Jewish context. He identified with his Jewish heritage by becoming circumcised to be acceptable to the Jews. Paul had to direct him not to get, up, get caught up with debating mystical interpretations of Judaism because that sort of thing would have come so naturally to him. That is what he excelled at. And so here Paul admonishes him not to lose sight of the fact that God has died for all demographics of people, Jew and Gentile. Because I think it would have been just easier and seemingly more fruitful for Timothy to prioritize the Jews in Ephesus since he already shared an identity, a heritage, and a religious background with them. It would have been easier and more convenient for Timothy if he didn't really have to deal with the idolatrous, vain-minded, cosmopolitan, witchcraft-practicing, Diana-worshipping, riot-making Greeks in Ephesus. If someone invited them to church and they got saved, that's fine. But let's have some boundaries, right? How can you even build a church off of those people? Do you want some former sorceress to teach in your vacation Bible school? Do you want a former priest of the temple of the temple of Diana to be your head deacon? Do you want a former drunkard of Ephesus to run your church coffee setup? Would you ordain an elder who was a former idol maker? 
Well, precisely yes, because God can save anybody. Let me apply this for us. God desires all to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So who is it that you do not see with an intentionality for the gospel? To whom are you so indifferent or unconcerned regarding the message of the gospel reaching them? Who are you calloused and indifferent to regarding their eternal condition? Is there a particular people group that you don't have love for? Is it the AAPI? Is it the police officer? Is there a particular persuasion, liberal or conservative, that you don't think about their eternal destiny? Is there a socioeconomic status, the hedge fund billionaire or the urban poor? Is there a particular demographic, the rural poor in Appalachia or the sophisticates on the Upper West Side? Is there a particular choice of sin or identification with the sin, the alcoholic, the self-identified LGBTQ, the pot smoker or the racial supremacist? Who is it that you have no concern for their salvation. You just haven't thought about how the gospel can transform their lives. Who is it in your life that you are indifferent to or callous regarding whether they will come to know the truth? Or do you think that that person, those people, are so hardened, so set in their ways, so far from God that they have no basis to even understand Christianity, that they will never come to God, not in a million years? Well, guess what? God desires all to come. Christ gave himself a ransom for all. My friends, this is the good news of the doctrine of unconditional election. The doctrine of unconditional election teaches that there is no human condition that compels God to save us, nor is there any human condition that would prevent God from saving us. God's determination to save anyone is his own absolutely free determination. Do you have anyone in your life like that today that you think they are so hard and so far from God that they can never be saved? Well, guess what? You pray and you be faithful with the message because God will do more in five seconds in someone's heart than you can labor for for five years. So pray for all outside the church. Point number three, the gospel. Finally, Let's talk about that message that saves those outside the church. Verse 5 says there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man. Um, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. When Paul says God desires all to be saved, he is not imagining that there are customized different ways for all to be saved. Rather, he will tell us clearly that there is one way for anyone to be saved. Verse 5, there is one God. You know, among anyone who believes in a higher power these days, you'll hardly find anyone who denies the idea that there is one God. They will accept that or some variation of that that they'll come up with and explain. Um, most anyone, even adherents of polytheistic religions like Hinduism, will still give assent to the idea that there is one God. They may not call it God. They may call it energy or being 
or the universe or the secret or the principle or the super soul, but a Unitarian and a Hasidic Jew, Oprah Winfrey, Mitt Romney, Jordan Peterson, a Muslim, Joe Biden, a Sikh, Donald Trump, a Hindu, Mayor de Blasio, your boss, your next door neighbor, they will all agree with that statement that there is one God. But the Bible means something specific when it talks about the one God. It means that, that there is only one being that is God, the one who is creator and sustainer of all, who reveals himself to man through scripture. We read in the London Baptist Confession, chapter 2, section 1, the Lord our God is one, the only living and true God. He is self-existent and infinite in being and perfection. He is a perfectly pure spirit. He is invisible, has no body, parts, or changeable emotions. He alone has immortality, dwelling in light that no one can approach. He is unchangeable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, in every way, infinite, absolutely holy, perfectly wise, wholly free, and completely absolute. Secondly, Paul says there is one mediator between God and man. A mediator is an arbitrator or a peace broker between two opposing parties. There is one mediator between God and man, and that implies that there is a struggle or a conflict or an offense between God and man. Mankind was created to live in perfect fellowship with God, to have dominion over creation and to enjoy God forever. Mankind rebelled against God and sinned, and through sin came death, and death passed upon all men because all have sinned. Isaiah 59 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not short that it cannot save, uh, nor is his ear heavy that he, it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Psalm 7 verse 11 says God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. As a righteous judge, God has appointed a day when he will judge mankind for their sin and rebellion and none of us would survive that judgment for the Bible says that there is none righteous, no, not one. The Bible says that we have all earned as the due penalty of our sin um, a death, eternal death, separation, from God eternally. But God, who is rich in mercy, has provided a way of escape from judgment. He has provided a mediator to mediate between himself and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. The nature of this mediator is not that we would think uh, in terms of the work of a human mediator um, as that takes place. He sits, a human mediator would sit down between two parties that are in conflict, make each of them compromise and shake hands, but rather uh, hear the way that the Baptist Confession describes Christ's role as mediator. It says in chapter 8, entitled Christ the Mediator, God was pleased in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, um, his only begotten son, according to the covenant made between them to be mediator between God and humanity. God chose him to be prophet, priest, and king. The office of mediator between God and humanity is appropriate for Christ alone, who is the prophet, priest, and king um, of the church of God. The number and character of these offices is essential. Because we are ignorant, we need his prophetic office. Because we are alienated from God and imperfect in the best of our service, we need his priestly office. And because we are hostile and utterly unable to return to God, we need his kingly office to convince, subdue, draw, sustain, and deliver and preserve us for his heavenly kingdom. 
Third, notice that Paul emphasizes the humanity of Christ in this passage. In order to be a mediator, reconciling man to God, he has to become man. He has to enter into humanity to introduce man to God. The Baptist Confession continues. When the fullness of time came, he took upon himself human nature with all the essential properties and common weaknesses of it, but without sin. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The Holy Spirit came down upon her, and the power of the Most High overshadowed her. Thus he was born of a woman from the tribe of Judah, a descendant of Abraham and David in fulfillment of scriptures. Two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without converging one into the other or mixing them together to produce a different blended nature. This person is truly God and truly man, yet one Christ, the mediator between God and humanity. Side note, in our world and in our time, people struggle with the idea that Jesus Christ is God. They struggle with the deity of, of Christ. Um, that he is the same being in essence as God, that he is eternally existent with God. But back in Timothy's context, the Greeks struggled with the opposite. They couldn't handle the idea that Christ was human, that he was truly man. His humanity would have been thought to be an illusion or a temporary manifestation. This is why the idea of the bodily resurrection was so hard for, for some uh, to accept the idea that our eternal hope would consist of the material and the physical and the body. The Greeks had a hard time with that. This is why the humanity of Christ is emphasized all over the New Testament. And finally, how does Christ mediate between God and man? It says, who gave himself a ransom for all. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. The Baptist Confession, again, the Lord Jesus most willingly undertook to this office. To discharge it, he was born under the law and perfectly fulfilled it. He also experienced the punishment that we deserve, that we should have endured and suffered. He was made sin and a curse for us. He endured extremely heavy sorrows in his soul and extremely painful sufferings in his body. He was crucified and died and remained in a state of death, yet his body did not decay. On the third day, he rose from the dead and with the same body, in, with the same body in which he suffered. In this body, he also ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father. Think about that. There is a man standing before the throne of God making intercession for you in heaven. Christ did not shed his body and humanity. That's hard. That was hard for some people to understand. That's why Paul emphasizes the man, Christ Jesus the Lord Jesus has fully satisfied the justice of God, obtained reconciliation and purchased an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those given to him by the Father. He has accomplished these things by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which uh, he once for all offered up to God through the eternal spirit. The message of Paul to Timothy and to us is clear. There is no other hope of salvation apart from this mediator who mediates between God and man. There is no other God to whom we must appeal, for there is one God. There is no other way to that God except through the mediator he has provided, and there is no other mediator except Jesus Christ 
who became man. There is no other way for the necessary work of the mediator to be done except through the man, Jesus Christ, who paid our ransom with his life. Scripture says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is the gospel message, and this is the testimony that God has called us to publish throughout the world. For this message, Paul was appointed a preacher, a herald of this message, and an apostle, an emissary to speak on Christ's behalf and receive divine scripture, open the doors for the gospel message to various geographic regions and cultural groups, and to lay the theological foundation to establish the New Testament church. And this is the message that we as a church have been entrusted with. As it's been passed down through the ages, this is the message that we are called to support and defend the testimony of the gospel against all enemies inside and outside. May we bear true faith and allegiance to the message of the gospel. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, thank you that the message of the gospel has been preserved for us and protected throughout the ages, and it's inscripturated for us that even us 2,000 years later might uh, have access to that message, know how to order our churches according, according to your instructions. We may know how to have a good conscience and how to preserve and protect and defend this message. Thank you for the gospel. Uh, thank you for your goodness to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.